it seems that for us to live life is to be embroiled in some form of conflict. We bicker with our siblings. We feel betrayed by our friends. You know, maybe we have irreconcilable differences on the future of the company with our co workers. We watch in horror as conflict turns violence. And, you know, we've got plenty to point to. You know, this, this uh, um, war right now that's going on between Hamas and Israel. You can point to Ukraine and Russia. Now, the knee jerk reaction when we are the ones experiencing conflict firsthand is to, you know, or even if we're watching from the outside as well, is to place the parties involved in the conflict into two groups those who are right and those who are wrong. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist. I've talked about him before. He is the author of the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and he has three great untruths that he says has kind of hijacked our emotional maturity as a society. And one of those great untruths that we have believed is that, quote, life is a battle between good people and evil people. Basically, that in just about any conflict, there are two options. Either you are a hero, or there is a hero, or you're a villain. But the truth about conflict is it's much more nuanced than just those stark dichotomies of hero and villain. Now, the passage that we're going to look at this morning deals with conflict. You know, if you want to open your Bibles and turn there, it's going to be Philippians chapter 4, and then we'll examine the section together. The first couple verses there deal with a very specific conflict between two people inside the church of Philippi. The second half of our passage is not exclusively about conflict, uh, but in its original context, I believe that it addresses uh, conflict outside, with those outside the church walls. So the first two verses deal with a specific context of conflict inside the church, and then I think what follows, you can make the argument given the context that it deals with how to handle conflict outside of the church walls. So hopefully you've had a chance to turn there, follow as I read Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So first, let's look at those first two verses, verses two and three. Paul singles out two women by name, Euodia 
and Syntyche, and he implores them to resolve their conflict. Now, he doesn't give any kind of clues as to the precise nature of the conflict, but it's evident that it was a significant enough disagreement to warrant Paul putting them on blast in his letter. Even though we don't know what was going on there, I think we can observe how Paul handles this shout-out and how he encourages them to reconcile. Now, before I get to some observations, I want to make kind of one of those uh, translation points um, of clarification. Uh, And and maybe this is something that would have gone over your head uh, if you were reading, and that's okay. Um, But just to point it out, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. So if you are reading a Bible that is descended from the King James Version, the, I think, the authorized version, the New King James, um, the Bible spells that first person differently. Instead of euodia, it's euodias, right, with an S at the end. And, And an S at the end of the name is actually a masculine form, a male variant of the name. And the reason this is here is Hugo Grotius, he was a 17th century scholar, who argued that this conflict that is described here was the conflict between a man in the church named Euodius and his wife Syntyche. Now this interpretation, I just want to say, is rejected by just about all modern scholarship. But the spelling was picked up in the translation of the King James Version of the Bible. Now, the only reason I point this out, because it might not be like, okay, how is this really relevant? Maybe I wouldn't have even known that that S meant that it was a male variant. But as we continue to explore the conflict, I want to ensure that we see that this is not just a marital spat between two spouses, but it's a disagreement between two very influential women of this local church. So that being said, here's what Paul has to say about this. So Paul says, he encourages them to agree in the Lord, right? The Greek literally says to these two women, have the same mind in the Lord. Now, I think this is meant to be a clear throwback to what Paul had written earlier, what we saw in Philippians 2.2, where he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He's saying this to the whole church, having the same love, being a full accord and of one mind. Now, if you remember, that context of chapter 2 was this example of humility of Jesus Christ, that this wasn't just about being like-minded, but also to interact with each other in compassion and tenderness, not out of selfish ambition, considering the needs of others before our own. And so right here in chapter chapter 4, verse 2, Paul is encouraging Euodia and Syntyche too, like Jesus Christ did, to lay aside privilege, to die to self for the purpose of the flourishing of the other, and through that resolution, the flourishing of the church. Now, as Paul addresses each of them, the ESV reads, I entreat Euodia, I think the NIV says exhort, and I entreat Syntyche. This repetition of this word that is translated entreat or exhort was actually not necessary grammatically. He could have just said, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche. That makes sense to our modern minds as well. But by Paul repeating that verb unnecessarily, I believe he does so intentionally to showcase his desire to be fair, to be even-handed. As he's imploring them to resolve this conflict, he's not taking sides between them. In verse 3, he speaks positively of both women. 
even as he's disapproving of their conflict. He states that both of these women have contended with him for the sake of the gospel. These are prominent women in the local church. They've shared ministry opportunities with Paul. And then he groups them with another figure named Clement. Some think maybe this is Clement of Rome, who was kind of a figure a little bit later. He would have been pretty young at this point in time when Paul wrote this, but whoever it was, it was another highly respected individual of the church community. The the kind of tag at the end is that they have their names written in the book of life. That's a title of honor that was used in Jewish literature to portray those who have suffered persecution but yet remained faithful. So these are faithful, respected women in the church. And and this is why I wanted to just highlight the error in some translations um, that identifies these figures as a man and his wife. Because, you know, we see two women here of influence and respect in the Philippians' church. And I don't want to diminish that. I think some go a little bit too far and kind of read into the text a bit more. Um, You know, we can't use this passage to formulate a comprehensive theology that supports women teachers and pastors. That's not what we're, you know, what the purview of this text is. But I think it's clear that these women had admiration and authority. And I don't want to see that diminished by recasting the gender of one of those characters. Now, the solution of their quarrel is not in view, but Paul's encouragement is for them to agree in the Lord. And this points, and, and I hope that we take this to heart as well, as the source of their reconciliation. Sometimes we are really uh, at odds with someone, and it's not through, natu- like, through natural means we're not going to get anywhere. But Paul's reminding them that God is in the midst of this disagreement, that he is working to bring transformation through his Holy Spirit to help resolve this dispute. Again, we don't have here a formula for ending conflict. There's no step A, step B, step C. But it does give us some characteristics of how we can understand or how we can carry ourselves in said conflict. So those first two verses deal with this very real conflict, a specific conflict in the church. And I want to suggest the next six verses deal with conflict with those outside of the church. Now, we have a tendency to use that more broadly beyond just conflict, and and I think that's fair. Like, we can apply this more broadly, but it should not be utilized as less than its original purpose towards conflict. So verse 4 begins with four admonitions from Paul. He tells the Philippians, rejoice to let their gentleness be known to all. Don't be anxious about anything and pray, right? Present your requests to God. And over the past few weeks, right, we've talked about the the place of joy in this letter. Um, You know, that word for joy or rejoicing appears 14 times. It really permeates this, this whole letter. You know, presenting these requests to God, prayer is somewhat self-explanatory as well. You know, when we're stressed, when we're anxious, we're invited to go to God in prayer. So I'm going to take a moment. I want to focus on the two statements in the middle. Look at what Paul means by gentleness and anxiety. Now, I'm fascinated by this word for gentleness because in the text it describes an attitude of kindness where the expected response is retaliation. Catherine rides a pretty rowdy bus to school, 
and I get to see some of those kids firsthand at the bus stop most mornings. And, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to do while I'm there is help some of these kids learn, um, you know, what it means to emotionally regulate, to have kindness, to have gentleness. But there's this kid, his name's Martel. Um, he's a second grader, and, and his, I know his teacher, and his teacher says he's, he's a little wild in class too. Uh, but Mar- Martel, in the words of our, our dear late friend, uh, Helen McCombs, uh, is the kind of person that can go from zero to prison in, in five seconds. That's, that's what she used to say about herself and her anger. Like, this guy gets triggered so easily at the bus stop with some name-calling of a couple of the girls. And, you know, like, I, I try to tell him, like, dude, they, th- like, you're responding exactly the way they want you to respond. Like, they know they can get under your skin. Like, don't give him that, don't give them that power. But, um, you know, a- after one of these particular days, like, I called Sarah like after Sarah, after Catherine got picked up, because I was like, I feel so in over my head. Uh, One of the girls had said something that ticked off Martel, and I don't remember if he like bopped her in the head or he kicked her in the shins, but then she like went and smacked him across the face, and now like, now he's like full rage mode. One of the other boys who's a little bigger than him is like holding him back while I'm trying to talk to him, and you know, absolutely, like Martel should not have put his hands on this girl, but I was, expl- I was trying to explain to all of them, like, what is an appropriate response? How do we avoid this escalation? And, and, you know, the girl said to me, my mom said that if anyone hits me, I'm allowed to hit them back. And I was like, how, like, Lord, how do I even respond to this? I start like quoting Gandhi, right? An eye for an eye and the, the world goes blind and the kids are like, who's Gandhi? And I, so I call Sarah, I'm like, I'm in over my head. I was like, this is why I don't do children's ministry because I like, I have such trouble relating to that. But this, I think, is the precise sort of context that Paul is talking about when he tells the Philippians to be gentle. He says, yeah, those people might've been cutting up, but God has called you to live differently. We see Paul elsewhere say, don't repay evil for evil. Instead, overcome evil with good for God. Paul uses the same word for gentleness as a descriptor for Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.1. Paul, he's clinging to the character of Christ, says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. We know you've been in church, you know that Jesus Christ suffered unfairly. But as the scriptures say, what was his posture? What was his attitude? He was silent before his accusers, the way that a sheep is silent before its shears. Jesus would have been fully justified in those, well, in so many moments of life, but in that moment of his passion to lash out at the religious leaders, to lash out of the Roman authorities for their unfair death sentence, but he didn't. I think Paul's saying, neither should you. So that brings me to this word, anxious. Now, the word can mean anything, right? We, we understand worry. We live in a time of worry. That's how Jesus uses it in, the, in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, don't worry about what you eat or what you're going to wear. But that word is often in the scriptures used in a context where persecution is an issue. Later in Matthew, Jesus is telling his disciples, you're going to be persecuted. And what does he say? Don't be anxious. Don't worry about what you're going to say in those moments. 
the Spirit's going to speak through you. And so given what we've seen in this letter so far, I think these admonitions, these kind of uh, encouragements that Paul gives in verses 4 through 6 deal specifically with encouragement for the believers in the face of persecution. Paul's saying you're going to deal with hardship, and that hardship is going to be really unfair. But in those moments, find ways to rejoice in the Lord in all situations. He says don't retaliate against your oppressors. Remember God's presence is nearby and replace that anxiety with thankful prayer because God has got you. He knows what's going on. And for that early church, the hope was not necessarily that God's going to bring deliverance right then and there. There were times that he did, but there were also times that he didn't. But their hope was rooted not necessarily in the present, but in the future of what was to come. What does Jesus say? Don't fear the one who can kill, maim the body. It's the one who deals with the life after that, the soul, or as you know, N.T. Wright says, the life after life after death. That's what our hope is in. Verse 7 gives us the consequence of that posture, right? This peace of God which transcends understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Jesus Christ. Now, that word for guard literally describes a garrison of soldiers inside of a city. So, Paul is in essence saying, you see those Roman soldiers, you see these religious leaders that are treating you unfairly, you feel outnumbered, you're feeling overwhelmed, but you're not abandoned. I have taken up residence in your heart and mind. God says, let my presence give you a peace, right? An inner sense of contentment as you face these trials. And that, as a result of this, this peace is going to perplex. It's going to infuriate those who assault you. It's going to surpass understanding because you're going to live counter to the way that they would anticipate for you to react. You're not going to respond the way that they would assume that you would. I think this is powerful stuff for the Philippians, and I hope that this posture, as we think about this, as we meditate on this, can carry up potency for us as well, and we'll circle back to this a little bit in application. All right, let's finish these last two verses of the passage. I'll go quickly through this. Verse 8 is marked by Paul telling the Philippians how to think, and verse 9 shares with them how to act. Paul encourages the Philippians to look for these things that are true, that are noble, pure, lovely. I mean, the the list kind of goes on and on and on all around them. I think what he's saying is this world is not going to hell in a handbasket. There are places that you can identify virtue in the broader world. Elsewhere in the book of Romans, Paul writes that the law of God is written on the hearts of those who, as he says Gentiles, but it's those who are apart from Christ, apart from the chosen people. There are fingerprints of God upon every human being. Now that image is marred. Humanity is in a state of rebellion against God, but there are still spaces where the pagans are going to act in accordance with the standards of God. I mean, maybe this is the, where you would use the cliche that a broken clock is right twice a day. There are places, he's saying, that you can look to the broader culture and you can rejoice or think in those things, dwell on those things, because there's virtue in it. 
Find those things and dwell in them. And then supplement that with these nuggets of truth, right? there, You know, the, the Bible, uh, most theologians describe um, revelation in two ways, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is I see the sunrise or the sunset, and it's beautiful, and I somehow know that God is there. I see the grandeur of, of uh, the cosmos, the beauty of color, the, the, the wonder of taste and be- I can know that there's a God and that that God is good and loves me. That's generally speaking, but special revelation is God's revelation directly to us. It's the Word of God. There are things about God that we wouldn't know just by looking at creation, but only because it's recorded through His his law, His prophets, the New Testament writings, His Word. And so, in other words, you know, Paul's kind of going on that tangential. He's saying there are things around that you can dwell on that are good, but you're going to need to supplement those nuggets, supplement them with the things that have been taught by Paul. Observe and name the good around you and put into practice those things that you've been taught by Paul or or Jesus for that matter. All right, let's move to application. And I've got three things I want to touch on. First, what can we understand about conflict through this lens of Christ? Second, what does gentleness, I just, I'm really kind of fascinated by that word, gentleness. What does it look like in the modern church? And finally, are we feeling encouraged to go to God in prayer for every circumstance? So first, conflict. As I, as I said at the start, none, none of us are immune to conflict. When you get two sinful people, disagreements are going to abound. I'm a big fan of, uh, 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 I'm blanking on his name, Tim Keller's book, for uh, marriage, marriage, master, no, whatever it is. Anyway, I'm blanking on it right now. It's not in my notes. Um, but, but he talks about this. Like, right, you, we, we have this assumption that like marriage should be easy if two people are in love, but he's like, he's a realist about this. We're sinful, broken, selfish people, and there's gonna be a point in time where we look to the other one and like, I want my needs and not to meet their needs, and conflict comes out of that. And so if it's coming out of that relationship, Um, If it's coming out of that relationship, it's going to come about a bunch of other relationships that you don't have that same level of emotional, loving connection to. Now, there are a few places in Scripture that describe processes for conflict resolution. Jesus suggests one in Matthew 18, and he says, you know, speak to the person. If you don't get anywhere, like, bring some friends along. If you're still not getting anywhere, go to the church. Um, what, What we see Paul share here is not a formula. There's no procedure to follow. Instead, he provides some characteristics of that resolution. So given what I've read, I think the number one piece of advice that I would suggest is that when we encounter conflict with other brothers or sisters in Christ is to do what Paul said, agree in the Lord. Find a way to be of one mind with each other. What would it look like if you're in conflict instead of seeing the other person as a villain, but you reach out with compassion and empathy to one another? If we take Paul's advice to follow that model of Jesus to put the needs of the other above our own. I mean, this is some pretty radical stuff. Our, I I shouldn't say our, my typical posture is to invert this. I rationalize why my perspective is true or more more virtuous than the other person and why they're the ones that need to get with the program. How difficult is it to truly humble yourself 
and come to the table to serve the other person instead of ourselves. Now, I, I always feel the need, I mean, in the day and age we live in, there's, there's asterisks, there's caveats to this, there's limits, right? Like, if you're in an abusive relationship, you should not continue to just, like, cower and endure the abuse. I don't think that's God's will. If there's an issue of safety, you shouldn't just acquiesce to the other, right? There are reasons that there are limits to that for sure, but putting those aside, think about a relationship that you have that's strained right now. Think of a person that you have a conflict with. You know, maybe they've wounded you in some way. Maybe you feel like they've been the ones going low and you've been trying to go high. What would it look like to extend an olive branch of understanding? What would it look like in the moment to put your, their needs above your own? And, you know, maybe you take an L, you know, a loss in this particular situation, but you regain, regain a friend. I mean, I've used this example so many times, you've probably heard it um, before, but in the event you haven't, uh, Bruce Bickle, uh, uh, he, he passed away a number of years ago. He was a vice president of PNC Bank, um, but he also, like, his daily or his weekly discipline was to prep a sermon, and so sometimes he would fill pulpits and preach um, every now and then. But he, he used to say, like, when he was in an argument with his wife, he would make iced tea because he knew how much she loved iced tea. And then he makes the joke, you know, he got really good at making iced tea over the years. But the idea, like the posture was, I might feel like I'm right in this conflict, but what is more important than me holding on to feeling right is to find a way that I can showcase, not just think or imagine love for my spouse, but show very real and tangible love for my spouse, putting her needs above myself. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's something to that. All right. Um, as I said earlier, right, the first two passages showcase an example of conflict within the church, and the remaining six, I think, can describe conflict, how to handle conflict with those outside of the church, especially in circumstances where we feel like we're being oppressed by others. And so this kind of question as I was prepping the, the message this week the, um, that kind of kept coming in is, what does gentleness look like in, in the modern church? Right, this, just to remind you, this gentleness, kindness that's on display when the expected response would be one of retaliation. Now, if that first context was a physical persecution of being attacked, flogged, perhaps killed, and were, Paul is expecting them to be kind in the face of that adversity, I think that sets a pretty high bar. That whatever conflicts we're dealing with outside, with the world outside of us, is probably going to pale in comparison just kind of set that, like, um, you know, that connection. Let's, let's orient ourselves in that. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are going to have enemies in the world. There's going to be people that do not understand our faith. They don't understand why we do what we do. There's going to be people that just assume they've already made assumptions that we're hateful and bigoted people. There's going to be those who lash out at us, and, you know, usually in a verbal manner. In those moments, what does it look like to carry this posture of Jesus? Instead of returning any vitriol we face in kind, I believe that Jesus encourages a better way of kindness, to show compassion, to show love to the outsider. Now, when I say that, 
I don't, I don't think I'm describing anyone here in this church, but I don't mean the type of superficial kindness that I often see in church folk, right? You know, like, my opponent is having a full and utter meltdown, but, like, I'm going to keep my composure as a way to, like, kind of continue to dig and get under their skin, you know, throwing in a few, like, I'll pray for yous. And I, I see videos of this all the time, and it just feels so um, condescending in the way they say that, right? Like, on the surface, it might seem kind, but it's really just another way of kind of showcasing adversarial behavior. I don't, I don't think it's genuine. I mean, maybe it is. I, I, I don't know those people, but that's not what I think Paul, Paul's not just talking about uh, actions. I think there's something to say about the heart be, be, be within. Um, n- next week, my kids are going to go see Les Miserables with their school. Uh, I, it's my favorite of the musicals. I've been trying to like wean my way into be a, a, a chaperone. Um, but there's this beautiful picture of gospel kindness in the musical. Former convict, the main protagonist, Jean Valjean, he's offered shelter and food by a local bishop, man of the cloth, and Valjean uses that opportunity to take advantage of the bishop by stealing his silverware and dishes. Jean Valjean is later captured by an officer that, you know, just knows that a tiger can't change his stripes and Jean Valjean is still rotten to the core, and so he's really relishing this opportunity to say, like, all right, I can put him away again. And so they return to the bishop to confirm the theft. The bishop tells the officers that he gave Jean Valjean the silver. But in Jean Valjean's haste to leave, that he forgot to take with him the centerpiece of the collection, these silver candlesticks. I mean, this is such a beautiful picture of gospel kindness. Jean Valjean had stolen from the bishop. It was fully within the right of the bishop. He was entitled to just throw him back in the slammer. He had every right to retaliate, but instead he shows kindness. He gives Valjean, he does not give Valjean what he deserved. He shows him mercy, and he does give him. He adds to what he stole. Giving him, these giving him these candlesticks, giving him what he had not earned, what he did not deserve, which is grace. And the result is transformation in Valjean. In the musical, he, t- he turns the corner. This is the moment. And, and basically, the, the bishop says, like, kind of, I've, I've bought you with this gift. There's, there's some questionable theology, you know, in that. But the idea is, like, uh, live into this. And he does. He becomes a repentant, honorable, dignified member of society. And I just think to myself, like, what would it look like if we as the body of Christ carried ourselves the same way? Right? What, how would the, the world be changed? I mean, Jesus with 12 followers and a host of other people who believed fully in this resurrection that no one could really hurt them that there was no power that they had over them, even as they were torturing and putting them to death and changed the course of history, what would it look like if we carried ourselves in that same way? And this is, this is what I love about the show Ted Lasso, right? There's nothing explicitly Christian about the show, but this kindness of Ted puts others on their heels. Even those who are antagonistic towards him cannot be helped cannot help but be won over, be transformed and won over as a friend. And so I just want to encourage you this week, what does it look like to live that sacrificial, radical gentleness of Jesus as you interact with others around you? 
And lastly, this isn't a mantle that we carry on our own. We're fallen human beings. I know my, my personality, kind of the way that I'm wired, is prone to justice. Right? I want things to be done right. I try to break things down into kind of black and white situations. And so I need help. I need God to transform my heart. But we're not alone. Right? We've got the Holy Spirit of God to work that patience, to work that compassion, that empathy, the fruit of the Spirit into our hearts. And so my final piece of application is to remember to pray for every circumstance. You know, Paul uses prayer as a remedy for anxiety. I know that when I'm faced with difficult situations, I'm having car problems, I woke up with a sore neck, there's conflict in my house with my children or coworkers, right? Fill in the blank, whatever it is, when I encounter difficulty, my first response is not to go to God in prayer. Usually, it's to find a way that I can kind of grip life, you know, grab life by the horns, figure out the situation, how can I make change happen? But instead of a last resort, when everything else has failed, prayer ought to be where I start. That doesn't mean I don't take responsibility for finding a solution, but I tell you what, my mind will be in a much better place if I pause from whatever stress, whatever trial, whatever conflict that I'm dealing with, and kind of center myself on God. Invite the Holy Spirit to guide me in this. You know, acknowledging that when I'm in conflict with a person, my gut might want to just punch them in the face. I didn't say that, but I was talking to someone who had conflict this week who said that. But instead, what does it mean to give God permission to change my heart, to change my attitude so that that's not what my visceral or natural response would be, that I can better model this love and kindness of Jesus to the world? So friends, I'm kind of rambling on here. I mean, conflict is... is all around us. I, I, I hope, I'm sure, somewhere in this message that there's a relationship that's come to mind. So I want to I encourage you, invite God to bring His peace to your heart and mind so that you would respond in a place of strength, right, fortified by that Spirit of God. Instead of reacting out of your own power, that we would be able to be a people of reconciliation and peace for God's glory and by His strength. All right, let me give you just a couple of questions if you want to relate on, uh, think on. So, you know, the, the first is this. Think, think of a relationship, a source of conflict in your life, and what might it look like? Maybe it feels too hard to do, but just imagine. Sometimes we need to kind of fake it till we make it, right? Like, imagine what it would be like to put the needs of others above our own. Second is to, you know, spend some time in prayer with God. Like, try to identify a place where you have felt wronged and you feel that you know, there's some type of harsh action that would be justified. You'd be well within your right. But instead, where God is saying, you know what, I need to respond differently to this person. I need to treat them kind of through this path of kindness. And last week, or, uh, lastly, you know, this week, if, if, you could, if there's a point in time that you feel overwhelmed, try to center on God first. You know, just, again, this is about taking inventory of our lives. I know a lot of times I'm kind of a, a, a um, out of sight, out of mind kind of individual, and so it's hard for me. You know, I get caught up in those things, but, you know, maybe if you are on Facebook and you see this, be like, oh yeah, right, I need to center myself on God. All right, let's pray, and then we'll close it out. Sarah, did you change the song back there? Okay, great. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for the, the ways in which you have revealed to us your word and the way in which we are invited to respond uh, in the way of Jesus. And God, I, I confess this is hard. It's not how I want to act. It doesn't always feel good to respond that way. 
But Jesus, you are our model, and not just our model, you are our Savior who has gone before us. Lord, you have suffered so that um, the worst that there is to suffer so that we don't have to suffer that wrath of God. And may we be a people of gratitude in the midst of this and allow that gratitude and love that you pour into us overflow to the world that we would show kindness. God, as I'm praying here, you know, your words come to mind that Paul writes in Romans that do we not understand that, that your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? And may our kindness as we show that to others, may that lead those others to repentance in your name that we might win others for the sake of your kingdom. But God, we can't do it alone. alone. And so we pray for your strength right now. In Christ's name, amen.